0: to a special episode of Rogue Librarians, a podcast in which three librarians discuss banned books. We are your hosts, Marion, Alana, and, and we, we are the, are the Rogue, Rogue librarians. librarians. Our third librarian, Dorothy, unfortunately had a family emergency and was unable to be here today. We would love for you to participate in our discussion please visit therogelibrarians.com or follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Rogue Pod or on Twitter at Our Librarians. Before we begin our special interview today, we wanted to mention a couple of things. First, in case you haven't already heard, the Brooklyn Public Library started the Books Unbanned Initiative last year to make banned books available to young people who can't access them. The Brooklyn Public Library invites Americans who are 13 to 21 years old to apply for a free BPL e-card to access their full ebook collection. As of January, 2023, they had 6,000 teenagers apply for a books unbanned e-card and check out 52,000 books. The Seattle Public Library recently joined the initiative. They allow anyone in the United States who is 13 to 26 years old to access their full ebook and audiobook collection. If you're interested, you can sign up for their programs and or donate to both of their funds. You can find more information about Bant about books unbanned in our show notes and on our website. Second, we wanted to mention that National Library Week was April 23rd through 29th. The American Library Association, or ALA, celebrated libraries and library workers and drew attention to banned books, reminding people how to fight censorship and releasing the top 13 most challenged books from 2022. We wanted to add how much we appreciate libraries and all library workers. Thank you for everything you do.
1: Today, we are excited to share our interview with the president of the American Library Association, Lessa Kananiopua Pilayo Lazada. Lessa talked with us about the ALA Annual Conference, her experiences as president, the United Against Book Bans campaign, and ways that we can fight censorship. We loved talking with her and learned so much from her. Oh
0: my gosh, she was just so real. She's she's a librarian like like we are, and I don't know what I was expecting, but she was just so so down to earth and so um as much affected by all of the things going on as we are. I just felt like, you know, we could all sit down and be friends. Yes, she was so lovely
1: and so thoughtful in her responses and it was such an honor to talk with her it today. It really was. And I have
0: to say, I mean, the ALA is obviously an important organization for libraries and librarians. But to find out, and I, I've always known all the great things they do, but to find out all the things, or not all the things, but that there are things that they are doing behind the scenes so as to make things better and not worse, worse was a really that was a really eye opening um, moment for me and it just made me feel so so good that that my membership is definitely money well spent.
1: Yeah, for me too, Marion. I thought that the fact that they go by what is best for the community and if it does not help the community to have the ALA publicly helping in certain ways, then they try to do more behind the scenes. So, I thought that was really wise of them to do it that way. It
0: just shows, you know, how smart they are and how respectful they are of each individual situation, which is exactly what libraries and and their individual communities should be. So um, uh, kudos to the ALA. Um, In in our interview, we actually discussed some features of the ALA Annual Conference. Um, The ALA Annual Conference and Exhibition is in Chicago from June 22nd through the 27th this year, 2023. If you are interested in registering, please visit 2023.alaannual.org. And for those who are unable to travel to Chicago, there is the option to register for the digital experience. You will have on-demand access to the main stage and educational sessions. Additionally, the clo- at the closing session, Amanda Gorman, the youngest presidential inaugural poet in US history, and Christian Robinson, a Caldecott Honor and Coretta Scott King Honor Award winner, will be discussing their book, Something Someday, which is available in September of 2023. I don't wanna miss that.
1: Yeah, it sounds great. We were thrilled to have the opportunity to talk with Lessa Kananiopua Pilayo Lozada today. She is the 2022-2023 American Library Association President and Adult Services Assistant Manager at the Palos Verdes Library District in Rolling Hills Estates, California. She recently completed a term as an ALA Executive Board Member from 2017 to 2020 and was elected as ALA Counselor-at-Large for three terms. In addition, she is an active member of the Association for Library Services to Children and the Public Library Association, among many others. She has held an ALA membership for more than 13 years. Pilaya Lozada has been involved in over 10 committees at the ALA and division levels. She was also the APALA Executive Director from 2019 to 2022 and past president of APALA from 2016 to 2017. She is a past chair of the Palos Verdes Library District's Builds team focusing on diversity and racial equity, and a Center for the Study of Multicultural Children's Literature board member from 2012 to the present. She is also a 2011 ALA Emerging Leader. Pilaya Lozada holds an MLIS and a BA in Sociology from the University of California at Los Angeles and an AA in Philosophy from El Camino College, Torrance, California. Without further ado, here is our interview with Lessa Kananiopua Pilayo Lazada.
0: Lessa, thank you so much for joining us on Rogue Librarians. Um, we've brainstormed some questions that we want to go over with you. And the first one is, what are some parts of the ALA annual conference, um, the upcoming conference that you're most excited about? It is so
2: hard to pick, I will tell you. Uh, But one of the things that I am the most excited about is actually my president's program, which is going to feature author Hina Le Moana Wongkalu, who is a Stonewall Honor Award winning author as well. As a um, Lambda award-winning author, she's a Native Hawaiian cultural practitioner, um, as well as a trans rights advocate. And so her book, Kapai Mahu, which won the Stonewall Honor Book, I had the honor of announcing at the Youth Media Awards. And it took everything I had to not cry, um, I think, at the first uh, Native Hawaiian person to be on that stage and to win that award um, was so meaningful. And her book is... um, about uh, four mahu, so not male, not female, but, a dual spirit in Hawaiian culture who come and bring healing powers to Hawaii. Um, and what that looks like, for the people of Hawaii, as well as how that legend and legacy has continued into today. So I'm really, really excited to be in conversation with her. I get the honor of interviewing her, which will be wonderful. And I'm also excited. I mean, excited is probably not the right word to be quite honest, but I am really um, happy to see the breadth of programming that we have around book challenges and censorship. We will be kicking off the conference on Thursday night with a rally to read where we're going to celebrate individuals who have made contributions and battled these challenges head on. And then we are going to figure out what our future looks like, how we can be more proactive. And there will be sessions all throughout the conference. I think there's at least 20 sessions out of the 200 sessions, educational sessions that we have on how to get your policies in place how to fight challenges, how to take care of yourself during challenges as well, because they are not easy on us as library workers. So there's so much going on. There's also, of course, news you can use, lots of exciting authors, um, as well as finding out what is hot in the literary world that we cannot underestimate the power of that exhibit hall and meeting all the authors and seeing the exciting new books that are coming out.
0: Well, that is amazing and you've actually already answered my second question so (laughs) so we'll just probably skip that because what i was going to ask next was what are the offerings that will be at the annual conference um which is at the end of june um what are the dates again the dates are june 22nd through the 27th right and that's in chicago exactly um that uh, I wish I were able to go, unfortunately, um, in my new position at a public library whose name shall not be mentioned for an an- anonymity. <laughs> um, but as you know, only some people get to go to the conferences mm-hmm. because we have to have somebody to keep the libraries open. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so um, so I'm hoping um, for a future opportunity to come. But yes, so when, one of the questions was what offerings are we going to have at the conference on banned books um, or similar topics? And it sounds like that you've already answered that, unless you'd like to add anything more to that.
2: I think the only thing I would add is that we're also going to have um, programs on health and wellness and trauma, which I think are intrinsically linked to book banning um you know and as well as coming out of covid so i just want to highlight those two additional ones those are two additional topics as well
0: yeah and th- that's huge because i know that i started in my new job in november and we've already had an in in-house you know staff meeting on trauma handling trauma mm-hmm. and we've also we just were participating in our state conference um, the regional conference and the keynote speaking speaker was speaking on trauma. Um, mm-hmm. And some of those sessions are really hard to sit through, I will say, because mm-hmm. we've all experienced trauma, but I cannot... Um, I cannot say enough how important they are um, and in dealing with the public, how how important it is to know our own levels in trauma and Mm -hmm. what our triggers are and then, you know, how to help our patrons who are also suffering from trauma. So that sounds fantastic. I'm excited. Again, I'm jealous that I can't go, but um, I'm sure I will learn lots from our folks who are going and will bring back information for us.
1: And we heard there's the option to register for the digital experience where you can watch some of the sessions from home. Is that right, Lessa? Yes, that is absolutely right. We are excited to offer a hybrid
2: experience again for individuals. So the virtual option, uh, our digital experience, will give participants access to more than 60 presentations from the conference wherever they are. These presentation selections are specially curated and include access to our main stage sessions, including speakers like Amanda. Gorman and Christian Robinson who are going to be our closing speakers, Um, virtual programs and educational programs, our News You Can Use sessions, and if you are a nerd like me, you can also have access to your ALA governance meetings and see your ALA council in full swing. Um, But these sessions will be available live as well as uh, many will be available for on demand through August 31st.
0: That's what I was just going to follow up and ask is um, because those of us who will be working in the libraries (laughs) wouldn't necessarily be able to view them live or participate live. But so they will be um, available as on demand.
2: Absolutely. Because we know how hard it is to balance that, you know, work conference life, especially when we are at work and on the reference desk and such. So you can enjoy it whenever you want to for two months following.
0: Wonderful. That's a great option. Thank you for bringing that up. Thank you. We want to come back
1: to banned books a little bit later, but we wanted to find out more about your background first. So we were wondering what was one of the most influential books that you read when you were growing up and why? Yeah, there's so many, but I think one of the ones that are
2: just, it's so vivid in my memory is The Giver by Lois Lowry. So, oh, yeah. yeah, right? Mm. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so I read it for the first time in seventh grade in Mrs. Garcia's English class. Um, and I've read it actually... A- a couple of times since then, both as a teen, as a young adult, and as an adult, because I think that I get something different from it every time. Um, Mm -hmm. When I read it that first time as a kid, it really opened my eyes, I think, to the nuances and beauty of living, and to develop an appreciation for different kinds of lifestyles right and all of the things that we might be missing if our rights are taken away and I also just love that you know at the end he leaves you know and he goes he takes a risk and he knows that something isn't right and he takes what he can into his own hands Um, Mm -hmm. and as an adult you know I've watching some of these themes play out in the world we are living in um you know to be quite honest trying to figure out what are we depriving ourselves of like what does freedom of choice really look like and how do we know when we have it and are not just following what is there you know i think one of the most vivid memories that i have even from reading the book the first time is when um when he he is given, you know, his first color, and just the Mm -hmm. emotions that overcome him and what that looks like. And how do we go through that as, as we are living our lives when we experience things that we never have before. And to just think of not having that ability, if we lived, you know, kind of in this dystopian world, you know, our, our lives would be so much less rich. So, that that's, has been super influential for me throughout my life. And I think it also probably kicked off my love of post-apocalyptic literature and and what mm. I call my love of sad books and, you know, kind of dystopian, <laughs> this dystopian world.
1: Yeah. That's oh, yeah. a wonderful choice <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so beautifully put, too. I remember when I first read it in school, it made a huge impression on me, but I haven't gone back to read it. Uh-huh. anytime recently so that makes me want to go back and reread it
0: yeah yeah and i'm curious if you went on went and read the and she lois doesn't call them the um mm-hmm. s- sequels or prequels but the partner books
1: companions yeah
0: companion yeah. books yes
2: you know i tried and i actually couldn't do it i couldn't finish any of them yeah. and i suspect it's because like this book made such an impact on me the the mm-hmm. following ones just they they weren't doing the same, I I feel. Um, And Mm -hmm. it was kind of all I needed was the giver. So it just didn't have quite the same vibe for me. So I I couldn't, but I've always wanted to go back and see if I can read them now. (laughs)
0: Yeah, yeah, Yeah. that makes sense. And you know, I've always said that there are different times in your life when you're able or not able to read certain books. So yeah, yeah, for sure.
1: Have either of you read them?
0: I have. Yes.
1: I read a couple of them, yes. But I, I felt the same way. They felt very different from The Giver. They mm-hmm. they did not seem to fit in the same way.
0: Yeah, and I I ran into Lois Lowry at <gasps> an A L A conference um, oh at gosh. one point and was fortunate enough to have a long conversation with her and asked her about them and she talked about, you know, she never intended to write any other, you know, versions of it. Um, You know, the giver was the giver. And she said so many of her fans kept writing letters and saying, I want to know more. I want to know more. And so that led to, what is it, Messenger and Gathering Blue. Mm -hmm. Um, And then inevitably the last one was Sun. Um, So I I never read Sun. I will admit that. I own it. (laughs) It's even autographed. (laughs) <laughs> but I have not yet read it because it hasn't been the right time for me. Yeah. Um, so I, I will I will at some point, but I I I did enjoy Gathering Blue and I did enjoy Messenger, but you're right. For me, they also did not have the same impact. I refer to the giver. It's it's so funny, Lessa, that you said that because in today's world um, so many things remind me of the giver. And I think to myself, God, how did Lois Lowry know that? Right. <laughs> like, I don't know. It's just, it's, you know, cause it's kind of prophetic, but, um, but it, I, I absolutely think about it and refer to it all the time. <laughs> so that tells you what kind of a nerd we are, all <laughs> what kind of nerds we all are, I suppose.
1: We're in good company.
0: <laughs> we are. Yes.
1: So Lessa, how did you decide to become a librarian? Yeah,
2: so I was planning on becoming an elementary school teacher. That's what I always wanted to be, other than, you know, a couple forays into wanting to be a marine biologist, as I think a lot mm-hmm. of people my age wanted to be for some reason. Um, mm-hmm. But I so I went uh, my schooling was all about going into teaching and uh, specifically kindergarten through second grade. Um, I was working at Borders for a number of years and saw a bunch of Los Angeles public library librarians come in and they had an end of the year slush fund. It was when we were all still very well funded in public libraries and they just bought a ton of books and walked out with carts of manga and fiction and picture books. And I was like, what is this magic? And somebody explained to me that they were librarians and where they worked. And I had never thought of that as a career path for myself, which I think is kind of an interesting thing because I was definitely a library kid. You know, in the fourth and fifth grade, I went to the library every day after school. It was the only place I was allowed to go by myself. I walked there. It was in between my grandparents house and my school. And I would go to my grandparents every day. My mom also works in a library. She works in a community college library um, as a library technician. But I never saw that as a career path until that moment in Borders. And so I thought, oh, well, I after I am burnt out being a teacher, because I like to have multiple plans and be very realistic about the future, I thought I would become a librarian. So I went to two days of credential classes um decided teaching was not for me actually the pressure of having all of those young people's futures on my shoulders was a little bit much and so (laughs) my plan b became my plan a and i went walked into the county of los angeles lomita public library to volunteer and they said well actually we're looking for a library page if you would like to be a page instead and that kind of solidified my love of libraries um, I got to explore a lot of different areas of librarianship as a page, um, you know, working out of classification probably a little bit. Um, but I got to try my hand at adult programming and children's programming to make sure that it was the right fit for me, and it absolutely was. and I haven't looked back since then. Oh,
0: that's such that's a great. wonderful story. <laughs> and it, and honestly, I, one that I can personally relate to. So, uh, as I told you, my mom um, was a school librarian. And mm-hmm. when I was a kid growing up, she was the librarian in my school. So I would also spend a great deal of time in the library. And, you know, not just because it was my mom, but she would let me shelve books and yes. do shelf readings and things like that. And I always helped her do inventory. and, yeah, so I it was kind of in the blood. So <laughs> <laughs> what a great story. Um, So we want to get back to um, your current position, which is um, the president of the American Library Association. And we were wondering if you could um, put into words what some of your proudest accomplishments are from your tenure as president of ALA.
2: Yeah, so I think one of my proudest accomplishments and probably the nerdiest accomplishment, I'll start there, is um, we've got through a bylaws revision. It is a historic moment in the association. You know, we traditionally have had a constitution and bylaws since the beginning of our association, which is almost 150 years ago because ALA was founded in 1876. And the way that modern associations and modern nonprofits work is they are not quite so mired in ancient uh, policies and procedures, whereas ALA has been. And so back in 2017, I had the honor of being the chair of the steering committee on organizational effectiveness to look at ways that we could modernize our association as well as increase member engagement. And one of the recommendations that came out of our final report from that committee was to modernize modernize our bylaws and so thanks to the constitution and bylaws committee as well as the committee on organization and a number a huge number of working groups in between our original committee and getting this to council um we were able to pass a new bylaws it has a new executive board structure it has a new council structure and so that historic moment which happened at liblearnx X in New Orleans um, is one of my proudest accomplishments seeing that through over the you know the last six years in different iterations and participation on my part but being the the president to guide us through a Four-hour bylaws convention that is rooted in parliamentary procedure um, mm-hmm. was quite wow. the task and something I love doing. But I think also what I have been extremely proud and honored to do is to steward the association through one of I think our most challenging times um, in mm-hmm. the profession. You know, I think when I decided to run for president, I decided to run in the summer of 2020. So we were. You know, in the beginning of COVID, we were in the middle of protests, you know, for the murder of George Floyd and the racial reckoning that we had ahead of us. And I thought that those were the themes that were going to be the ones that I would carry through and lead our association in. And I did not know that I would have book challenges, which I think come exactly out of those two main things that inspired me to run for president. Um, To be able to be the spokesperson for the association and to fight back publicly has been a proud accomplishment of mine, as well as an honor, and to figure out what that path looks forward for us in a proactive situation rather than continuing to be reactive against book challenges.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that that just really beautifully leads into my follow-up question, or my next question, which was, what has it actually been like to lead the ALA in the midst of a record-breaking book-banning push across this country?
2: It's been it's been difficult, I mean, to say the least. I think that, you know, being the president, especially in this time, there's a lot of, there's a very heavy weight and responsibility on my shoulders um, to figure out what our future looks like in a member led organization you know that's one of the beautiful things about ALA but also one of the frustrating things in moments where we have to do things quickly where we have to you know galvanize ourselves and organize ourselves as much as we can is we are we rely on volunteers to do this work right like i am a volunteer right. i still have a job i still have to go to work in right. addition to being president And so I think that, you know, while I I said earlier, it has been an honor, it's been very difficult and challenging. And but I think that our members have risen to the occasion to be able to do it, as well as our ALA staff. You know, we have an ALA staff of about 200 folks who work across multiple divisions and offices um, and who execute and help our members to um actualize the things that we need and so through that partnership it's been rocky and it hasn't always been perfect but i think we are getting to a place um where i'm really excited about the things that we have coming up to continue fighting back against book challenges
0: oh that's great
1: yeah (laughs) we wanted to ask a few more questions about those efforts, because we know that you've been working so hard on that. And um, we know that you just published data from 2022 of how many book challenges there were. And um, it also mentioned that many challenges don't get reported. So it's not even inclusive of all the challenges that have happened in the past year. Do you have a sense of how many more challenges have occurred that haven't been reported to the ALA's office of intellectual freedom and uh do you also have ideas for how we can encourage more people to file reports
2: yeah so it's it is really tough to say since it is all self-reported we do also take into consideration um, news reports that we see if things haven't been reported but based upon the data that pen america has gathered as well as the data that we have i would say that we're probably at least double the number probably in wow. reality of right wow. because we're also talking soft challenges we're also talking mm-hmm. formal challenges there are so many different areas that go unre- underreported because I think that folks are afraid right it's it can be scary to report a challenge if you think That you're going to be found out for whatever reason you know we have like library workers facing harassment and doxing and potential job loss and you know fines depending on what state or what jurisdiction they're living in so i can completely understand why individuals don't report but there's a couple things that i want to emphasize to encourage more reporting is that ala keeps your information completely confidential Um, we put out during national library week a heat map of where book challenges have occurred within the country that have been reported to us in 2022 and the conversation around making that map even was a very very nuanced one you know because we really had to think about if we attach numbers to states How are people going to maybe try to seek out those individuals? You know, what does confidentiality look like? Because it is of the utmost importance to us to make sure that individuals are not outed. Um, You know, a lot of this work has to happen behind the scenes because ALA as a national organization is not welcome in a lot of places and actually can do more harm than good. So we want to (laughs) make sure that we're mindful of that. And also, I want to encourage folks to file reports because so that we can get an accurate number um, to know that it's confidential and to know that the Office of Intellectual Freedom can help you. Also, if you don't know where to start or if you are experiencing harassment or legal ramifications, our office is there to help you figure out what your path forward looks like and how they can help you and your community and your library get through these challenges.
0: That's a really, that's good really point. helpful. Yeah, it really yeah. is.
2: Cause I think also like, yeah, and no, I would these, the, it feels isolating, right? Like it's, you feel alone a lot of the time when these challenges can be happening, especially if you, especially if you're in a school library. And so to know that you're not alone also and to make those reports. So just wanted to add that extra plug there.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, no, and yeah. I appreciate that because um, you know, it's not a surprise. in in my library, we library, we also recently had, I guess what you'd call a soft challenge. Um, there were people who were unhappy about it and but it wasn't it never became official, right? Um, there was a discussion about it at a board meeting. Um, but the thing is, you know, what what we've all learned from it, first of all, the librarian who had read the so-called offending story was terrified because of the particular location where that person works and what the politics are of the folks who live around there. Um, And also, um, you know, from our director, we learned a lot about how our local politicians are involved in Mm -hmm. library funding and so on and so forth, and how those relationships are very delicate. And so, you know decisions and things that you say or do have ramifications far beyond um what you think they do and so this has been very eye-opening as as a um relatively new public librarian i had previously been a school librarian so it's been interesting and a little bit scary (laughs) yeah yes (laughs) we have seen a bunch
1: of great resources on the website of the ALA's Unite Against Book Bans campaign. There's a very detailed toolkit and lots of suggestions for things that people can do. What actions do you think are most useful for us and our listeners to take to fight censorship at this point?
2: Yeah, I think the number one thing that we can do is to spread the word to our friends and family. You know, we cannot do this alone. We cannot be the only ones speaking out against book bans. We have to have those individuals in our communities, you know, our patrons who need these materials, who need these books to speak out on our behalf. Um, because that is, you know, we, we are often public employees, um, and it's the voters, right? It's the voters who have to speak up, those who put these individuals into positions of power that are trying to subvert our power. So I think that spreading awareness is really important, but I think also being proactive is really important. So writing to your library and school administrators to say that you like the collection that the library has, um, you know, to let them know the impact that the books have made on you and your family. So so that when book challenges come, they already have that information in their hands. And if, you know, if you're comfortable, there's also um, information on, on how to help you do this in the toolkit. You know, write op-eds to your newspaper before book bans come to alert folks you know, that they are not welcome in our community or that we are open to having a conversation about these books in our community and what that looks like and to emphasize you know that not every book is for every reader, but every reader absolutely deserves to see themselves in a book. So it's a lot of spreading awareness, getting the message out there and stopping them before they even come.
1: That makes so much sense. And we're certainly doing what we can to spread awareness and we're going to continue to ask everyone who listens to this to do what they can to talk to their friends and family and spread awareness every way they can. We have already touched on this a little bit, but uh, the ALA has noted that there is a politically organized push to encourage conservatives to challenge books and pass legislation, especially in certain states. Does the ALA use similar tactics to help fight against censorship? And is the ALA focusing on particular states where censorship is particularly rampant, such as Florida, Texas, North Dakota, Indiana, Missouri, and other such states.
2: Yeah. So some of the ways that we are trying to organize ourselves are through the Unite Against Book Bans campaign. Um, you know, as a five hundred one c three, we do also have to be really mindful of the constraints that we have um, mm-hmm. as an educational nonprofit organization. So we do have, you know, limited lobbying. The types of information and advice we can give is sometimes limited but we also have a lot of power in organizing and galvanizing our advocates and those who support libraries across the nation. And so what we really have to do, especially in states like Florida, Texas, etc. cetera, is to understand when and where we will do more harm than good as a national organization and when we need to be out front and when we need to be behind the scenes helping. You know, um, we helped a lot in Texas with the uh, Lano County Public Library where they Mm -hmm. had books that um, were removed. The judge ordered them to be put back on the shelf. We helped with that part of it um, behind the scenes and then also getting folks when the local city government wanted to just shut down the library because the books were back on the shelf, you know, calling upon our advocates who had signed up for unite against book bans in that area to be able to talk to their legislators and let them know that they wanted the library to be open and they were successful. You know, we've also done a lot of help um, and work in Missouri um, around the defunding of the library. And so, You know, we do, we do a lot of these things, um, quietly because that is the most effective way. But we are absolutely helping to organize, um, and to help in whatever ways that we can and whatever ways because each state has its own chapter also. And not all state chapters are made the same. Um, You know, some have staff and some have are completely volunteer. So we take the lead of our local folks to know best for their communities and step in and be that loud voice when they need us to be and when it would be most helpful.
1: That's wonderful. And that makes a lot of sense that it's very individualized and whatever the particular community needs, then you know how you should or should not step in to help. But I did not realize that you were doing things... Um, behind the scenes in Texas to help make that a success. So that's really great.
0: Yeah, that's that, it's, oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, no, I was just going to say, agree and say that's very encouraging. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's tough because we do, it's a lot of what is ALA doing? Right, Like, ALA isn't doing anything, we're being silent, but it's because we're doing everything so quietly because we don't want to make it worse.
1: <laughs> right.
2: Know? So it's it's very nuanced, and I, I'm glad that we have, um, you know, after the fact, um, you know, some library organizations are are sharing the ways that ALA has helped. But even if they don't, we're just happy to see, you know, legislation pro-library legislation pass and anti-library legislation not pass. So however we can help, we are there for whether we get credit or not.
0: That's great. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not sure if you've had an opportunity to listen to any of our previous podcasts, um, but we did do a special segment on legislation, both, you know, legislation that's being debated in some states and also legislation that's already passed in some states. And, you know, there are some pretty um, scary bills out there Mm -hmm. that are seeking to hold librarians, both school librarians and in some cases public librarians, criminally responsible Mm -hmm. if um, we, you know, as librarians using our um, professional knowledge that we've got master's degrees for, you know, if we choose to read a book that, or have a book in our collection even, that is considered offensive by someone by Mm -hmm. someone's standards that are not very clear Mm -hmm. librarians can be sent to jail or fined heavily and that's a a pretty frightening um precedent that is being set in in some states so um so i was wondering um lissa if you could maybe speak from the ala perspective about how have library effort um sorry how have Mm -hmm. library workers both librarians and Um, librarian assistants, um, pages, how have all library workers been affected by this rise in censorship um, and new laws that are targeting these schools and libraries?
2: Yeah, you know, we've seen a lot of fear, Um, you know, fear for job security, just like you were describing, fear of being jailed and fined, um, as well as harassment, um, you know, we've seen individuals have Facebook groups, um, formed, you know, to kind of go against them, like Amanda Jones in Louisiana, a school librarian. Um, we've seen, uh, you know, effects on mental health, um, like the Lemony Snicket Award, um, winner from 2021, um. Uh, Martha Hicks, you know, she is very vocal in the toll that the book challenges in her school library took where she had to take time off because she was not really able to function anymore. And, you know, all of this results in a retention issue for libraries. You know, we don't have you know, specific numbers on it, but we have anecdotal evidence that we have individuals leaving the profession because this is not what they signed up for. They did not sign up to be attacked and to have their professional and personal integrity challenged at every turn. And so one of the things that we're really trying to figure out is how to support our library workers. You know, we had a lot of mental health issues and fear coming out of COVID, of course, right? Like the, the trauma sure. that we all experience. And so this is just adding on top of that, like we have not been able to have a break as library workers to just process everything that has happened to us. It's one thing after the other. So we're seeing these are kind of the general themes that we're seeing. um, And we're really hoping to be able to support library workers, not just in knowing that they're not alone, but also in being able to provide them resources. I know it's watching a webinar or something like that is the least thing that you want to do, you know, when you're experiencing these things. So to Bring people into community, um, and to make sure that also their administrations are helping them in the ways that they need are
0: essential. Right, I think that's that's wonderful, and that is is so very important. I mean, because you know, I'm I'm seeing it in my library. You know how how stressed um, some some of us are. Um, but the other thing that we've been talking about, you know, kind of amongst ourselves, is it feels like all of this legislation that is leading to, um, you know, questioning librarians and their professionalism Mm -hmm. is somewhat of a systemic devaluation of the librarian certification. Um, You know, and and the same thing is happening kind of in the schools where, you know, Mm teachers are professionals they have to get a degree and they have to pass tests and they have to get a certificate and they have to renew that certificate every five years or something like that in most states and the same is true for librarians and yet you know common humans who may or may not have even a high school education or beyond are questioning the professionalism of of librarians and teachers and that whole certification process so where do you see that going or have you have you all talked about that as an ala
2: yeah you know i think it's an attack it, it, you all are exactly correct it's an attack on education right it's eroding trust in our educational institutions that are actually very trusted you know ala did a survey in March of 2022 that found that I think it was like the number I don't have right off the top of my head, but I would say 90% of people, bipartisan individual surveyed voters said that they trusted their public library. They trusted their library workers to make decisions based on their professional training. And so this is absolutely a way to erode trust and to pump misinformation into our communities so that nobody knows what is what and they will just listen to the loudest voice, right? Because I think it's important for us to know also that it is a vocal minority that is in favor of book bans. In that same survey that ALA did, 71% of individuals said that they were against book bans in public libraries. And so we know that we are the trusted institutions, that we are members of our communities and that is why these, you know, this vocal minority that is in, that is trying to hold on to a certain level of power are coming after us because we are trying to ensure that power is shared and that everyone in our community can have a voice and that is troubling to a lot of individuals.
0: Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, is there anything else that you would like to share with us um, about the conference? We wanted to get back to talking about the conference. and. Um, uh, you know or or the current work of ALA or things that you would like people to know that ALA is is working on on our behalf.
2: Yeah, I think one of the things that I would like folks to know that ALA is working on um is because we've been talking a lot about, you know, the devaluation of, you know, our professionalism and the trauma and stress that we've all been going through is that we are working towards um Figuring out how to best utilize our companion organization, the ALA Allied Professional Association, which is a 501c6 and can do different levels of advocacy and lobbying on behalf of library workers so we've been looking at the opportunities for that traditionally it's been used for primarily for certifications there's an administrator certification um, as well as a library worker certification but we think that it can be a real advocacy tool and arm for especially for those um, who work in libraries where perhaps they don't have a voice um, or they don't have a strong relationship with administration to be able to have their needs met. So um, if folks are interested in what ALA APA has to offer now, they, we also in ALA APA are the sponsors of National Library Workers Day, which of course um, occurs on the Tuesday of National Library Week. Um, as well as has resources for what organizing your workplace might look like or the library salary survey also to make sure that you are being paid, you know, the, the correct amount. So that's one thing that I would like to highlight that ALA is working on um, for our annual conference. Um, I'd like to just maybe share a couple of more exciting speakers that are going to be there. Um, yeah. We're going to have a uh, Tony Award winner, Adina Menzel. and Ooh. Yes. <laughs> And her sister, Kara mensel they're gonna talk about their book, Proud Mouse. Uh, One funny note is that, you know, kind of in all the press that I do, they're like, See, you know, Adina Menzel, Frozen's Elsa. I'm like, no, that is Wicked's Alphaba. That is Rensmore. That is my girl.
0: <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh-huh.
2: Yep. <laughs> so we have Adina and Kara coming. We also have Rick Riordan and Marcus Shiro talking about their new book, The Sun and the Star, which is a fantasy novel that follows Nico D'Angelo, the son of Hades, and Will Solace, the son of Apollo, um, which were Ooh. two of the popular, yeah, from Percy Jackson. Um, and I'm also excited to welcome um, Nikki Grimes, poet and author Nikki Grimes and illustrator Brian Peakney to talk about their new book, A Walk in the Woods. So there's going to be a lot of really exciting authors, of course, and speakers. And we just can't wait to share it with everyone. Oh, that sounds so sounds exciting. Sounds wonderful.
1: <laughs> we wanted to ask a couple more questions if you have time, Lessa. Yeah, please. Um, before we wrap up. Okay, great. Um, So you recently released the list of the 13 most challenged books from 2022, and we were wondering if anything in particular surprised you about the list this year. Yeah, I thought, well,
2: number one, that it's a top 10 list that had 13 books on it. Uh That surprised me Um, because there were so many ties, which I think is indicative of a couple of things. One, that individuals are using past lists. Um, to challenge books they're using as kind of a guide which I think helps us as library workers because we can see if these are sometimes in good faith book challenges right because I think that it's okay for people to ask questions about why books are in the library or why they're in a certain section and not other sections because it's a great time for us to for them to understand how our library processes work how our collection development um, processes work but also to understand you know the concerns of our community members and where they are at. Um, but when they're using these book lists as guides, that's a different conversation. So that was one of the things that I was most surprised about were the number of ties. But the other thing was the number was the books that hadn't been on the list in a long time, but reappeared on the list. It's I think it's related to individuals using the, the previous list as quote guides. Um, but mm-hmm. like perks of being a wallflower or crank by mm-hmm. Ellen Hawkins, you know, these are books that I, you know, Perks of Being a Wallflower, uh, of course, you know, is is a timeless, you know, a modern classic for so many. But I was also like, are people still reading? You know, like Crank right. and Perks of Being a Wallflower. Mm-hmm. Um they hold a special place in my heart. But, you know, some books are for a, a, a certain time and mm-hmm. don't always perpetuate. So I thought that was very
1: interesting um, and and frustrating as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Because a lot of the books that were on the previous year's top 10 list were still on this list. But as you said, there were some, some older books that... Uh, Reappeared that were on previous lists. So that's very interesting.
0: Yeah, it is and we had we had looked through that list again and you know Had a similar reaction. It was kind of like what's going on here. Why, why is that back there? So. Yeah,
2: I thought also, you know, the number of books, of course, you know, books are the, the books on the list are really focused on LGBTQ and yep. BIPOC voices and stories But the number of books, almost every single book, I believe every single book had the one of the reasons listed as being sexually explicit, this extremely vague term, um, you know, whereas before they might individuals trying to ban these books might try to come up with more, quote, creative uh, reasons to ban it. It was just straight sexual explicit, sexually explicit, which. I think just shows that they have not read the books also and cannot take the con- the the scenes perhaps, or the passages that they're looking at if they have read it at all um, into the context of the entire work.
0: Yeah. We definitely yeah. found that to be the case when we read and discussed out of darkness, mm. you know, the kinds of reactions that there were to that book and, you know, people clearly had not read beyond, you know, certain passages yeah definitely Mm -hmm. certain passages which Mm -hmm. which is sad because i mean yeah it their books are so rich and you have to tell the full story and the full story has to carry with it some difficult things in order for us to fully understand and learn but um yeah it, it it's just a sad statement that people Are getting so bogged down with with one or two passages and they can't they can't see the you know basically they can't see the forest for the trees um so
2: but i will say it's wonderful you know for podcasts like yours and individuals like you folks who go through those stories right and who really analyze them and talk about them and show that these are whole people's stories you know if you just take one scene out of any of our lives and make that the whole story, we know that you are missing so much richness out of the individuals that we become. So I just wanted to say thank you for all the hard work that you folks are doing too.
0: Well, thank oh, you. Thank we you. really appreciate that. And honestly, it has led us to reading, to have read to some truly life-changing books. I mean, I know mm-hmm. that the three of us were completely shattered by out of darkness, and we all loved it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, and definitely, definitely felt that life changing um, feeling. And, and we're all learning. I mean, we're all learning. Yep. I, I kind of want to go back to number one on the list that is still genderqueer. And um, what does that say to you?
2: Yeah, I think that that one is, I would say the number one book taken out of context, right? So I've actually mm-hmm. sat on a reconsideration committee for genderqueer in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the reason was that it was pornographic, you know, because they looked at the one panel. But if you mm-hmm. read the mm-hmm. whole story, again, that is not the case. But I think also it speaks to why graphic novels are often challenged and misunderstood as well, because it adds the visual element to mm-hmm. the story. Um, So it makes it seem like it's for children because it's illustration, but we know that there are graphic novels that are for adults, that are for young adults and that are not for children and are not marketed to children at all. And so I think that it's also just a real misunderstanding of the beauty of graphic novels Mm -hmm. and what we as adults can get out of them and that they are not just for children. So that's a huge, you know, kind of educational campaign that i know a lot of graphic novels and and comics lovers have been on for a very long time um but it just it really shows that folks don't want to listen they they don't want to listen to each other they don't want to learn to have empathy for any opinion that is not theirs
1: yeah yeah yeah
0: well and that's again goes back to why all of us all three of us and our colleagues are all doing what we're doing because we we want we want people to read and learn and experience and have conversations because the conversations mm-hmm. are what are going to bring us together and to to help us all to understand each other better. Yes, so. yes. Um, we saw on your website that you have held several different positions in libraries, <laughs> <laughs> including children's librarian, teen librarian, and most recently, adult services librarian what is one of your favorite things about being an adult services librarian? (laughs) So
2: um, I will say making the transition from children's to adult was very difficult for me because I love being a children's librarian so much. Um, But I also wanted to explore this new community that I didn't have as much experience with. And so one of the things that has been really um, wonderful about being an adult services librarian is helping folks through their golden years and helping them thrive through their golden years. Mm -hmm. I think that so many folks, especially because I live, um, I work in a community that has a very high population of seniors. So I think it's like 60% of our population is seniors. Um, So what we see are individuals who are not ready to be put out to pasture, who are not at the end of their lives or even their careers and still have so much to offer the community. But as soon as individuals retire or hit a certain age, that stigma of they can't navigate technology or, you know, they can't do, they can't drive themselves, they can't do all these things, um, becomes a stereotype that I see so many folks working, whether consciously or subconsciously, to fight against. And so just seeing how they can bring their wisdom also to the library and to the broader community by giving ideas and sharing, you know, what their career used to be and how, you know, they can apply their engineering skills to helping with the children's program or with the friends of the library or just learning a completely new thing and starting a new business. They meant to retire, but oops, they're now starting a whole new job or career um, in their golden (laughs) years has also been really rewarding. And just developing those relationships and seeing how their communities grow um, has been a wonderful part of being in adult services.
0: That sounds great. That's wonderful. (laughs) Yeah. um, I've dabbled just a little bit in my public library in adult services. But one of the things that I really love is when a library does, holds different book discussions that are not pegged as, you know, adults only or children only or teens, you know, YA. Um, But it's really fun when people come together to have conversations about a book and are bringing their perspectives from, you know, whatever age they are. And, you know, I always get a kick out of some of the the seniors who come in and, you know, they'll say to the younger folks, oh, I'm so much older than you, or I'm the oldest <laughs> person in the room, and here's my perspective. But what I notice is how much the younger folks really appreciate that, and mm-hmm. I think vice versa, and that's, you know, that's part of the whole learning conversation that needs to happen in society you know the the library is where it all comes together um, is how I always look at it and you know that's that's where community all comes together and it's just so beautiful to see it all happen like that absolutely
2: I think the book club is a beautiful example I we did one um Uh, for Women's History Month, for uh, We Should All Be Feminists. And it was an intergenerational group that was there. And to listen to, you know, our older generation talk about what feminism meant to them and how it was a dirty word. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, for us younger folks to be like, oh, yeah, like, I'm a feminist, I do this. And like, just seeing how we bridged kind of the gaps over the years and shared our experiences on what it was like to be a working woman you know, in the 50s and 60s versus now and how things are different and how they are not. Um, It was really a wonderful way for our community to come together. So I love that idea. I think everyone should have intergenerational book clubs.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. I love that too.
1: (laughs) Finally, Lessa, could you please tell our listeners where they can find you online? Yes, I am at
2: Lessa4libraries.com. All of my social media handles are also Lessa4libraries with F-O-R spelt out except for Twitter because I don't know how uh, letter counts work. So that is the number four, Lessa4libraries.
1: <laughs> awesome. Lessa, thank you so much for everything you do for the ALA and for your library. And thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you, this has been a real pleasure and delight to speak with fellow library workers.
0: Uh, Thank you, Lessa, we've really enjoyed you very much and your wisdom and thank you for all of the behind the scene things that ALA is doing for libraries. We, We just are so grateful. Of course.
1: Thank you. Thank you. We really enjoyed talking with Lessa today. We were so honored and excited that she could speak with us. It was a really eye-opening conversation. You can find Lessa's contact information and the ALA conference information in the show notes. You can find more information about the ALA, the United Against Book Bans campaign, and other resources on our website at therogelibrarians.com resources.
0: Please join us next time for a discussion of the picture book, The Librarian of Basra, A True Story of Iraq, by Jeanette Winter. If you would like to leave us a question or comment, please visit theroguelibrarians.com or follow us on Instagram or Facebook at roguelibrarianspod or on Twitter at rlibrarians. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts. And please leave us a rating and review. Your ratings and reviews help other people to find our podcast. We also wanted to give a shout out to our newest patrons, Patrick and Danny. Yay! Yay! Thank you, Patrick and Danny. Yes, thank you so much for helping us to continue making this podcast. We are so very grateful. If you would also like to support us, please join our Patreon at patreon.com slash roguelibrarians. As a patron, you receive bonus audio content, content, and we give you personalized book recommendations and other great perks. Another way you can support our podcast, as well as indie bookstores across the country, is by purchasing a book from our affiliate shop at bookshop.org slash shop slash roguelibrarians. You can find lists of the books we have discussed and others on our site. And finally, thank you to Chris for creating the beautiful music, Heather for running our Twitter page, and Lizzie for doing the audio editing. We couldn't have done this podcast without them. And finally, thanks to all of you for reading with with us, because books Books are are meant meant to to be be read. read. Bye. Bye!